G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. It is a Tuesday and we are back to check the latest breaking news headlines as they come out of Israel and the Middle East. Ron Ross has been across those headlines working hard into the night and back with us again this morning. Ron, welcome back to 2020. I've actually been to the moon and back. (laughs) Well, that's interesting because I'm excited about what is happening for the people of Israel. And you know that there is a certain sense of pride, national pride, when your nation is doing incredible things. So let's have a little chat about this Israeli lunar spacecraft that's on its way to the moon. Uh, What are the headlines saying, Ron? Well, the interesting thing is the name of the spacecraft is Bereshit, which in Hebrew means Genesis. So they've actually named it after the first book of the Bible, and it would suggest the Israelis have a long-term plan which begins with Bereshit. And it successfully completed its first manoeuvre toward the moon after detaching from its launcher and completed its planned orbit of the Earth. The lander will be captured by the moon when the lander's orbit around the Earth takes it into close proximity to the moon. After two months, it's set to land in the Sea of Serenity on April the 11th. Scientists and technical staff at Israel Aerospace Industries headquarters were notified of the spacecraft's high sensitivity toward the sun's rays in the star trackers on board, but are hopeful that this issue can be resolved en route to the moon. If successful, the landing on the moon will make Israel the fourth country to land on the lunar surface after the former Soviet Union, the United States and China. It's quite breathtaking. Ron, let's dwell on this for just a moment. I don't want to over-spiritualise this, but you've got the Bereshit spacecraft Uh, which means, as you say, Genesis, or in the beginning. Uh, There is a spirituality about that, and as Christian believers, looking at what the resurgent Jewish people are doing, is there something we can, you know, we can uh, hang our own coat and say, isn't that good, in a spiritual sense, for our Judeo-Christian heritage, uh, that there are some good things that are actually uh, uh, having the name in the beginning, Genesis, on a spacecraft on its way. We talk about the word anointing. And uh, I prayed over my son-in-law before he went away with the Franklin Graham uh, crusade that he would have anointing to reach uh, the lost. And uh, we now recognize, I hope we recognize, that there is an anointing on Israel to do amazing things. We often talk about new medical developments that they make, uh, scientific, all sorts of things. Uh, They just won an Academy Award and they have an anointing uh, to bless the nations. And we can embrace that fact that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has an anointing on Israel that's quite breathtaking. 
And a reminder to listeners that your son-in-law is Steve Grace. And interesting, as you talk about an anointing for individuals, which usually is the sorts of ways that we contextualise that, but really good, Ron, to be able to think of an anointing as not only on an individual but also on a nation. And we ought to expect that you'd see those sorts of good things happening, even in a technological sense, when the blessing of God is on a nation. Let's well, move it's on. Interesting that God says in the Bible that Israel will be a blessing to the nations. That's and, right. And uh, that's exactly what I see in this spacecraft activity. And it's very interesting that uh, Netanyahu made sure that there's a Bible in the spacecraft on its way to the moon. All right. Uh, Ron, let's talk some other headlines. The UN Secretary-General is reported as saying we're seeing a groundswell of anti-Semitism. How does the context of this story look? Well, the United Nations plans to scale up its responsibility and its response to hate speech, according to the Secretary-General Antonio Guterres, who said that on Monday as he warned against a rising tide of xenophobia, including anti-Semitism and anti-Muslim hatred. Hate speech is a menace to democratic values, social stability and peace, he said at the opening of the month-long UN Human Rights Council 40th session in Geneva. Hate speech has spread like wildfire through social media, the internet and conspiracy theories. It's abetted by a public discourse that stigmatizes women, minorities, migrants and refugees, he said. Hate is moving into the mainstream in liberal democracies and authoritarian states alike. Political parties and leaders are cutting and pasting ideas from the fringes into their own propaganda and their campaigns. Parties once rightly considered pariahs are now gaining influence over governments. And we see what's been happening recently in the United States. Uh, he said, we have seen how the debate on human mobility has been poisoned with false narratives linking refugees and migrants to terrorism and scapegoating them for many of society's ills. The UN is in the middle of preparing a global plan of action to combat hate speech. On March the 18th, the United Nations Human Rights Council will debate seven reports against Israel under Agenda Item 7. The UNHRC is mandated to debate Israeli alleged human rights violations under that act during every session. Israel's the only country with such a standing mandate. Charges of human rights abuses against all other countries are debated under Agenda Item 4. And it's very interesting that Australia has taken a stand uh, that this uh, Agenda 7 be eliminated. And uh, it, it's very positive to see that. Denmark and Australia called on the Human Rights Council to stop its biased treatment of Israel by eliminating Agenda Item 7 when they spoke yesterday at the opening of the session in Geneva. Australian Foreign Minister Maurice Payne said it's our firm view that a separate agenda item focusing on a single country, in this case Israel, is inappropriate. It does not occur in any other context for any other country, she said. 
And I guess the lesson in all of that, not only with the UN and the nation of Israel and international relations, is that on an individual level, Ron, when you detect rising hate speech, oftentimes that gives light to this whole uh, issue of anti-Semitism and something we must guard against. Ron, let's talk about another headline, and this is another good news-style headline, if ever I saw one. And when we think about Egypt, predominantly an Islamic nation, you've got the president in Egypt, President Sisi, offering Jews to return to Egypt, and he'll even build synagogues for them. What is the story here? Yeah, if Jews are interested in establishing a Jewish community in Egypt... The government will build synagogues and other communal institutions, President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi told a U.S. delegation last week. President Sisi spoke fondly not only of Egypt's past vibrant Jewish community, but also said that should there be a resurgence of the Jewish community in Egypt, the government would be very supportive. Sisi's comments came a couple of weeks after the United Arab Emirates officially recognized its small Jewish community in a move seen as an effort to present itself to the West as a country that is tolerant of other religions. I think behind the scenes, uh, the Donald Trump mandate towards these nations, if you want support from the U.S., you better become more lenient towards Christians, uh, is a very powerful force. While there was never an historical Jewish community in the United Arab Emirates, Although there's now a small synagogue in Dubai, the Jewish community in Egypt extends back to antiquity. Before the establishment of Israel in 1948, an estimated 75,000 Jews lived in the country. They were expelled in the 50s, and only a handful of Jews are believed to live in Egypt today. The Commission's founder said that Sisi also promised to clean up the ancient Byzantine Cemetery in Cairo, a cemetery dating back to the 9th century and believed to be the second oldest Jewish cemetery in the world. And so interesting to see leaders, and you say there might be some, uh, there's some sort of uh, political and alignment there with uh, funding that might come from the US, but it does appear to be that President Sisi bends over backwards not to align with the values of the Muslim Brotherhood. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Ron, let's talk Saudi Arabia. Here's a big change as well. They've announced a woman as a U.S. ambassador. Saudi Arabia announced that Princess Rima bint Bandar al Saud will become its next ambassador to the United States, the first woman ever to take on an envoy role for the kingdom. Her appointment was made public on Saturday. Princess Rima spent part of her childhood living in Washington, D.C. She assumes the role at a difficult time as Saudi Arabia tries to quell an international outcry over the death of Jamal Khashoggi, the journalist. After giving conflicting explanations of what happened, the kingdom eventually admitted Khashoggi, who was once a royal insider, was murdered after entering the country's consulate in Istanbul last year. Recently, members of Congress have also investigated U.S.-Saudi relations in other areas, including on nuclear technology and the war in Yemen. 
Princess Rima will take over the role from the Crown Prince's younger brother, Prince Khalid bin Salman, who has been appointed as the country's Deputy Defence Minister. But wow, what a change in Saudi Arabia. There's change that seems to be happening everywhere, especially in this set of headlines we're talking about today, Ron. Another one that is so, so significant is that in light of the ISIS nightmare, a reign of terror against all who would be apparently infidels, it's prompted some Muslims now in the Middle East to convert to Christianity. How does this story read? Yeah, many of the Christian churches in the Nineveh Plain in northern Iraq were defaced or completely decimated by ISIS. Many of the Christian churches in the Nineveh Plain in the northern Iraq uh, have been totally lost. A convert, Jamiel, said, I can never go back to Mosul. There is no civil reconciliation and peaceful coexistence. I have psychological problems and nightmares every night, worrying that ISIS will come back and kill me and take away my mother and my sister. Sometimes I can't sleep at all. I don't know yet if I can trust anyone. ISIS were savages and killed people for simple mistakes. For Sam, and we're using different names, of course, for Sam formerly Salim, a 26-year-old cafe worker in Baghdad, his conversion came at the height of the ISIS chaos in his country three years ago. I was a faithful Muslim, as was my family. But I saw the bloodshed around me. I became sympathetic to what the Christians were experiencing. This sadness touched my heart. I first learned more, then I changed. However, since the very beginning of the rise of ISIS, imams, Islamic leaders and scholars across the globe have denounced the extreme ideology and accused the barbaric group of twisting their religion to fit a nefarious agenda. Yet a switch to Christianity often doesn't come without consequences. While the passage from another faith into Islam is mainstream and widely discussed, conversions from Islam to other faiths are often staunchly prohibited and come with dangerous repercussions and retribution, meaning most must be kept shrouded in secrecy with names and identities protected. As the ISIS caliphate crumbles in Syria, Foreigners who join the terror groups are trying to return. Apostasy is a capital offence according to traditional interpretations of Islamic law. Those who convert are customarily threatened with death from either Sharia-based states, radical mobs, or even their own families, says John Ibner, a human rights advocate and the CEO of Christian Solidarity International. It's really incredible that we must continue to pray uh, for these converts and that people who are being drawn by the Holy Spirit to leave Islam and become Christians. And we also need to wonder whether we become lukewarm from time to time and rise up to respond much more actively. We hear stories like this, Ron, and we are reminded just how difficult it is for those Christians in those nations, as you talk about the Nineveh Plain, Iraq, and as things are continuing to change and evolve in Syria and other nations, places like Iran, and difficulties for Christian believers, and we can appreciate why so many believers need to be secret believers. But I concur with you, Ron Ross,
This is where we need to pray because as those regimes crumble, as ISIS becomes less, we might hope that Christian believers are more courageous to be able to put their head up and to put their hand up and say, yes, we're still here and we're intending to reassert some level of influence in the community. That'll be an important thing for the future. Ron Ross, Thank you so much. What a great set of headlines today. Appreciate your insights, your input, and for and going to the overnight news and bringing us the latest updates. Thanks for being with us once again, Ron Ross. My pleasure. Thanks, Neil. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.